Welcome to Support Heroes by Kaizo, the number one source of customer support insights in the world of audio. I'm your host, Sebastian. Each week on the show, we'll be having insightful conversations with customer support professionals from some of the most well-known and exciting companies around the world. If you're looking to forward your career in customer support, this is the place to learn from those who have succeeded in doing exactly that. Our superstar guests are at the ready to provide you the lessons they learned from many years on the front line of customer support. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy yet another episode of Support Heroes by Kaizo. So, Duta, here we are. Thank you very much for coming. It's lovely to have you. Good morning, and thank you for having me. No problem. No problem. Thanks for coming. It's good to see you. So, Duta, I would like to know a little bit about you, about where you come from, what you did. Who are you, Duta? Tell me a little bit about yourself. I started my career mostly in what I would call hardcore engineering. And I think the first part of my career was more, I would call, a depth-focused career, where the focus was on you know problem-solving, writing software, managing software development teams. And I did that for a few years, and I felt like I could do different things. I was curious, and I embarked on the next kind of my tranche of my career, which I like to call the breadth part of my career. In this kind of phase, I ended up trying almost seven different roles across three companies, HP, Market Tools, which is a company that's since been acquired by Confirmit, and Google. And in this period of breadth, I I had also completed my MBA. And what I really wanted to do was to figure out how to learn the best I could about what happens in different parts of the business. As an example, how do you take products to market, product marketing? How do you build products, product management? How do you figure out what a good M&A reconciliation is? How do you understand go-to-market from the perspective of business development? And last but not the least, how do you think about serving customers, which ultimately sort of at Google led me to do another pivot into more leadership types of roles, which were Mm -hmm. all around how do you help really streamline a customer's journey? How do you improve the customer lifetime value? And so in this third tranche, which is what I think I am in right now, Mm. more about leadership. And leadership, not just from the people management perspective, but leadership truly in terms of trying to serve the market, grow the business, my value proposition or value that I provide to the organization is how do you really engage customers? How do you do it in a profitable way? How do you help scale businesses? How do you acquire uh, customers at scale? Uh, Things of those nature. I think that's really interesting, right? Because you started basically designing the products itself, building the software. Mm -hmm. Then you took one step back to kind of say, okay, but who is this product going to? Who's going to use it? How do we ask those sorts of questions? Mm -hmm. And then you took one further step back to say, okay, well, what does the entire market say? How is sales as a service as a relationship between two parties? So it's really taking multiple steps back and then analyzing more and more factors and integrating them into the strategy. In the last few decades, there has been sort of an integration of many more factors into product design and thinking sort of unilaterally about the way that products are used and the environments and the relationships that feed into a successful product integration into a business. Yeah, I would agree with you 100%. Mm. I think absolutely that is absolutely the case. If you think about development of a product, go to market, you could survive in the previous world by being much more functionally self-contained. And, uh, you know, some people would call it siloed. Maybe siloed is not the best word, but I would say functionally self-contained, where everybody had their swim lanes and they would execute and it would eventually work. I don't think that is true anymore across any function, whether it's software development, whether it's customer experience, whether it's sales, it's much more interconnected. Yeah. And I think that's why I really appreciate customer experience as 
a field that encompasses all aspects of the way that companies interact with customers. Because, you know, with my background, I think very much about the psychology that feeds into certain consumer decisions, you know, the psychology and behavioral economics that dictates the way that certain relationships go. And I think integrating those insights and putting that at the forefront of your thinking is probably the most productive way to approach a financial relationship or even a business relationship going forward. What I want to do is really start off and pick your brain on some of the foundational aspects of how you approach customer success, the different stages of customer life cycles. It's kind of like a way to categorize different stages that businesses, uh, business to business relationships or business to customer relationships. Can we just go through that first and then maybe jump off from there a little bit? Yeah, sure. Let me kind of say something very simple. The world today is more interconnected and that is the primary reason why customer experience matters so much more. Mm -hmm. And when people talk about customer experiences, they're not just talking about support or what they felt with the product. It's effectively a summation of all the touch points anyone has with their company, whether it is B2B or B2C. Mm -hmm. You can take a very simple example, right? Like ordering meals or a dinner through an app. It's not just the act of ordering. There was a time you actually chose to download the app. There was a time you were in some kind of a consideration on why you chose that app. And there's also, after downloading that app, and as this meal ordering has happened, there's an aspect of what kind of food you're getting, and then ultimately, would you choose to do business with that again? And to take a step back, the example I'm going through is really what is the fundamental essence of delivering great experiences, mm -hmm. which is to capture the entire customer journey. And the way I look at customer journey, it starts all the way from how do you make people aware of your product? So awareness right. is probably the first big pillar. Then customers typically go through some kind of an evaluation phase. And it doesn't matter if it is a B2B product or a B2C product or some hybrid thereof. People are evaluating, should I use this? Will this help me solve my problem? Mm -hmm. The next stage usually is a decision point, which is, do I use it, not use it? In the simplistic example of meal delivery, when we took a step back, I said, hey, at some point you chose to download. That is like committing to actually doing the first step of, hey, I actually want this. Yeah. The buying process now, you know, in previous world, and if you, and I'm using the food as a simple example, you could choose to enter the store. And once you entered a restaurant, you would probably buy the food. You'd hope. <laughs> I dine and dash. <laughs> right. We haven't done that in a while, but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. Are, I entered a restaurant. The decision was fully consummated. Like, you're going to sit down. I'm going to have a meal with you. And we're going to, like, you know, enjoy our time together. In an app environment, we use Grubhub or, you know, Uber Eats or whatever. Mm -hmm. The fact that I downloaded the application doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to order food also. So yeah. now all of a sudden, something that was a simple one-step process starts to become a multi-step process. Mm -hmm. So this is the part where I call, how do you engage customers? Because the fact that somebody has downloaded something or chose to sign a contract doesn't necessarily mean they're going to actually use it. Right. Engagement is like post kind of buying downloading, engaging is like the next phase. And this is a very, very critical phase. And it doesn't matter if it's a single transaction business or a subscription business, because this is where the product, how you engage with the product really, really matters. Now, if the engagement is good, then the last phase comes in, do they see value and will they renew or re-engage? So if I summarize this entire journey, it starts from engage, awareness, engaging, 
actual a buying decision then sort of engaging with the product mm-hmm. and then ultimately ultimately making a decision whether to renew or do business with you again if you're enjoying this program and would like to hear more please consider following us on your favorite podcast provider and if you'd like to support rate us five star on apple podcasts thank you right And I really like the food app example because it perfectly illustrates the shift that we mentioned before, right? Because, you know, if you think about the food industry, a lot of businesses think about, okay, we need to make good food. We need to have a nice restaurant to get people in. And then if they like the food, they might come again. Whereas what you're forwarding is you extend your analysis far beyond the point that the customer walks into your restaurant, right? It's like, how did they find out about us? Like, where did they find out about us? Like, in what context did they find out about us? And then after they leave the restaurant, maybe you say, hey, we want to make them come back. Maybe we should send them a voucher. Maybe we should let them know that we're going to have a party later on, you know? And then you start to build a relationship with that customer rather than just viewing it as a transactional relationship. It's more of like an interpersonal relationship almost. You're kind of investing in that person in a way. I think that is 100% correct. And, you know, for a big segment of the business, COVID has literally forced us change in a matter of months. Right. So I think with COVID, a lot of businesses have had to make this shift in a very short period of time. And the shift is literally from engaging somebody on a one transaction to making them aware. And I love the example you gave. Hey, maybe there is like a party. Maybe there are new things going on. So all of a sudden, a business that was focused on just getting people through the door now has to think about what is great content marketing? How do you think about getting repeat business? Mm -hmm. How do you think about having people not just to order one thing, but order multiple things? If if you have a typical takeout order, right? You go in, you say, hey, I want my favorite pad thai. In an online environment, you have the opportunity to go back and say, hey, would you like a Thai iced tea with it? The papaya salad Mm. is amazing. And I'm giving very B2C examples. But if you think about a business to business, the same dynamics are coming into play. If you're thinking about setting up some sort of a software, let's say you think about a company like Shopify and you're starting mm-hmm. to put your own e-commerce store, all of a sudden, there are options. There is a marketplace. And in that marketplace yeah. are various things to help you, not just put a storefront, but add this additional things to add value to your business. Mm-hmm. No, I definitely see that. And I think this also relates to something else we spoke about. A lot of business success really comes down to company evolution versus mm-hmm. sort of customer evolution, right? Yeah. So customers and their expectations of companies are always evolving. And I feel as though the companies that really, really go the extra mile or ahead of the game in some way, they just blow everyone out of the water. I think one great example would be Apple Mm -hmm. designing computers that actually looked good. I remember seeing this interview with Steve Jobs where he had his iMac and he's beaming proud because it's the only computer that actually had any color on it. And he said, they look so good, you kind of want to lick them. And I just thought to myself, you don't want to lick an IBM computer. You know, they're, they're, they're brown, they're beige, you know? What the hell? But you've got this gorgeous green Apple computer. It's like, yeah, you know what? I kind of do want to lick it, Steve. You know, it's a goddamn computer. I never thought I would say that. It looks like a lollipop. It perfectly illustrates the way that a very, very small, seemingly insignificant piece of innovation or change can just blow everyone else out of the water because it just puts you leaps and bounds ahead of everyone else. I, I, I so agree with you. I think you're you're referring to I think the you're called the IMAX or something that they had a candy exactly candy yeah candy, right like they look like exactly and <laughs> yeah because it's like every computer that came before then looked like you know there's no there's no two ways about it and just by making that computer attractive to look at you make the functionality of it so much higher right because suddenly it's a machine that you want to use. Suddenly, it's something that you don't hide away in your study or your spare room. Maybe you put it in your lounge. You're not, you know, you're not ashamed of it. It doesn't look bad. And I, I, I would agree with you. And you know, I'd like to sort of build on your point a little bit and add some color. 
you know, we, we're talking about how everything is much more integrated. And this is a great example. And I can, I can draw a few things from my experiences in the past to say the value of doing good customer experience is also being able to extract some of these insights. Mm-hmm. At one of my previous companies, we had an interesting exercise. We were talking to some customers and uh, it was one of those focus group type of things. And mm-hmm. I was very surprised with this said, you know, I like your product, but man, like the billing is just like billing and paying invoices. is just like really, really bad. And I was actually taken aback. This is not what I'm expecting to hear in an overall feedback session. Mm-hmm. And we tried to unpack it and figured out the source of the problem. The source of the problem was very, very simple. First, when we went and we looked internally, we found that billing issues were indeed taking a lot longer than they should have. Now, they were following between the overall benchmarks of what we operate our support teams on. But when we took a double-click, a next level of detail, we were like, but this mm-hmm. is taking eight hours on average to resolve this. These questions are super simple. Why are they taking eight hours on average? Mm. And when we dug in, it turned out the billing organization internally was using a different list to prioritize. All the customer experience organizations, the sales organizations had used an internal segmentation that was a combination of revenue spread plus growth metrics, plus how important the customer was through some internal scoring. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the billing team had, for some reason, chosen to use the Fortune 500 list as a way to prioritize their issues. As an example, if somebody was not on the Fortune 500 list, they would automatically be bumped into a lower priority support queue. And that was causing the disconnect. Now, obviously, Fortune 500 companies are great, but there were a lot of companies that we traditionally did not do business with. So there was a big mismatch internally around Mm. a simple act of solving a billing question that passes between two organizations that have been prioritized differently, causing a unpleasant or a lesser than ideal customer experience. Understood. Yeah. I think also a point that that touches on, and something I would really, really like to pick your brain on, is constantly iterating and improving with regard to customer success. Now, one such thing that you mentioned as being a core tenant of actually doing that successfully is employing data. Mm-hmm. Let's get onto the data point in a second. But first, how do you value feedback and iteration in the whole scheme of customer experience and customer success? And then how have you seen this successfully and unsuccessfully implemented in your career? I think feedback is 100% the key to making any experience, anything, any product good. Simply because when you start off, everyone, including me, will make an assumption of what needs to be delivered, whether it's a product, Mm -hmm. whether it's an experience. Experience could be anything from what is the minimum amount of time we resolve an issue in to how do we proactively engage with customers and help get them onboarded, or how many touch points do we need to have them to make them feel comfortable about the product. So Mm -hmm. we all have internal assumptions, and the best way to really tailor to customers' needs is to try something with a good, solid hypothesis and then test out, is it getting the intended results? However, one of the common pitfalls we all make is when success happens, when failure happens, it's very apparent because, hey, people were supposed to buy more, they're not buying enough. We are seeing click-throughs, but we're not seeing conversions. We are Mm -hmm. seeing app downloads, but we are not seeing post-install engagements. So if things don't go right, I think it's much more easier to spot because people are focusing on the success. Where we miss the boat, and I constantly check myself on this, it's easier to celebrate success 
But I like to sort of ask the question, why were we successful? Yeah. How can we make sure we isolate the factors that drove us to success and not pin it on luck? I will give a very simple example. Mm-hmm. This was a product that I had worked on early in my career. And we went and launched this product. And it was a direct sale. The first two quarters or so, we got a lot of people to buy the product. And we were feeling really good. And we're like, you know, this is going to continue. This is really going to continue. And we really hit the mark and we've met the customer need. Very quickly, we figured out that was not the case. But we figured out, I would say, six months to a year later. And we could have figured that out a lot earlier if we had paid attention. And some of the things that if we had, we should have paid attention was, why are people buying NMAS? Well, it turned out the company was running some promotions and some extra sales incentives, which the salespeople were very excited about. And they aggressively focused on pitching the product. There wasn't actually great market traction. It was salespeople being very motivated to push the product. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. when that promotion spiff ended, spiff is like special incentives, the sales folks moved on to selling other parts of the portfolio. And what we thought was, hey, once we get this set of customers, We'll get more case studies, we'll get this, we'll get that. And none of that happened. And Mm. if we had really taken the step to say, hey, now that these customers have bought, let's engage with them and understand what they would like to do with the product. How will they be successful? Yes, they have installed it. Are they seeing value? We would have been able to fine tune and use those six months to refine the product and really make it better and land the product in a better way. Of course, we did all those things, but we lost some time. And when we lost some time, also, it was a competitive market. So our competitors gained on us. Yeah, you lost some momentum. Exactly. Mm. And that really reiterates the importance of feedback, right? And I guess what you're basically saying is that feedback as to why you're successful is as important as feedback of why you didn't succeed, right? right? And it's difficult because in your defense and in your colleague's defense, there is a heuristic that kind of dictates that it's difficult to do this. It's the hot hand fallacy. So if something's going well, you implicitly assume that it's going to keep going well, which is difficult to counter against. If something's going well, you feel good and you can maybe point to the effort that you and your team have put in and say, this is why we're succeeding. But it almost requires one being a little bit bar humbug in a way. When something's going really well, You'd be like, yeah, but guys, do we really know? Which is difficult because it's hard to be that person. But obviously, from what you said, it's really, really important. And I think there are ways to do it. And this kind of will hopefully dive into this concept around data. Yeah. You know, these are things you learn and evolve as time goes on. I have a big bias towards really understanding the business uh, by instrumenting it. And I have this concept where I... Really, and it's not my concept, I think it's everywhere, but I, I like to frame it in this following ways of talking about business metrics in terms of input metrics and output metrics. Right. And what I mean by input metrics is what are the things that we drive improvement on a day-to-day basis? Mm-hmm. And output metrics are things that will happen if we do all the right things. Right. Let me go back and make it fundamentally about something almost everybody knows in customer service, which Mm -hmm. is customer satisfaction and net promoter score. Right. One cannot just like manufacture a great customer satisfaction score or an NPS score. That's an output metric. If you do all the right things, the customers will indicate that the service is successful Mm -hmm. or the experience was good. And that will be captured via one of these scores. And that would be an example of an output metric. But when Mm -hmm. you think about the input metrics, there's a whole bunch of things that go in there. Did you respond accurately? 
Did you respond in a timely manner? Was the tone a friendly, encouraging, education-forward way? Yeah. If there was a confusion, how quickly did you resolve it? Is that problem happening again and again? They say they have fixed it. And again, after five days, that same thing shows up in some other form, right? Right. So all of those things are what I would call more input metrics, things that are within Mm -hmm. your control, things that a business can measure. Mm -hmm. Once you have established this concept of input metrics versus output metrics, the conversation that we are having, when you're successful, why you're successful, when you're not successful, why one is not successful, becomes a little bit easier. Because now we can talk about and say, what are things we are doing really well to drive the success? Mm -hmm. And if we don't have those items, then what I really like to encourage my teams is to say, well, then let's find out. Because clearly if this worked and this was so good, we should do more of this stuff. Yeah, right. Relying on saying, hey, we were super smart people. And I'm not questioning anybody's smartness, of course. But, you know, business is not just about your smarts. There are so many external factors. And the more we are able to capture, quantify, and derive insights, the better it is to be able to take all of this and translate that into real feedback, sometimes for the service organizations, sometimes going back to our point before, to product. And helping yeah. them say, customers struggling with this, how can we work together to solve this and make it better mm. for our customers? I think there's two other aspects too, and, and this really moves us towards the importance of data. And I definitely agree with everything you just said. But the two things that also data circumvents is, A, it allows you to reduce the amount of bias in your thinking, right? If you're figuring everything out ad hoc, using your gut and your instincts, that can only take you so far. And at the same time, no one human being can properly or perfectly compensate for their biases, their heuristics, their you know social, cultural things either. Exactly. The second thing too is that if you want any sort of predictive power, yeah. if you don't have data, you're screwed, right? Good luck trying to predict anything without a hell of a lot of maths. God only knows. If you talk to anyone who's anywhere close to finance, they'll tell you someone's just randomly training in their room. Good luck. Good luck to you trying to outdo the algorithms that are reanalyzing and analyzing the market millisecond by millisecond, nanosecond by nanosecond. So I think the the bias and the prediction are really, really where data pulls ahead and where there isn't any argument in that regard. I would 100% agree with you. In fact, I always like to, when I, when I start a new job or I take over a new team or whatever, I really try to make this assessment, like what kind of organization it is at the current Interesting. Level. And I, I, I have like my personal term, it's not an industry standard term. I think there are organizations that are basically what I would call story organizations, where mm-hmm. it's about the la- largest deal that came in or like the big save that somebody did. It's all about ce- celebrating via hero style stories. And mm-hmm. some of the characteristics are really around this. When it's successful, it's ours. When it's not successful, there are many other factors. But, you know, we pull together and we fight together. Um, mm-hmm. And that's like, you know, one archetype of an organization. And, and then the second one I feel is when people realize they're scaling, they're growing, they're like, listen, we actually need to know what is going on. <laughs> yeah. We are actually in a global environment. And customers in Europe have different needs than customers in Latin America. And their cultural expectations of customers in Asia on what they expect from different service providers and whether they're software or vendor or hardware, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is different expectations. So you all of a sudden get into this looking into modeling data, et cetera. But what most companies end up doing is building a data, but they're using data to understand what has happened in the past. And, and database organization is a great place to be in because if you don't understand the past, which is the concept we're talking about, feedback, you've done mm-hmm. one thing and you're going to look at it and you're going to feed the information back to improve it, make it better, or identify new things and do make it go forward. Mm-hmm. The last piece of this is really the thing what you touched on, which is what I call 
really science type organization. How are you using this data to predict outcomes? And it could be for a, for a pure customer service organization, something as simple as, can you predict the volume of tickets that are going to come next week? Mm-hmm. Something simple and fundamental like that. Can you do that with a certain range of accuracy? And let me tell yeah. you what that power gets you. If you know, and if you're able to predict how much volume of tickets you're going to get next month, and if you do it well in two months, three months, all of a sudden, you can start to see patterns and you can have your customer service representatives trained in a particular way. You Mm. can figure out the right staffing model to support that volume. If the volumes are going down, you can reutilize that time and educate your agents, improve, give soft skills training so they can engage with your customers even deeply. Very simple things like predicting volume of tickets can help you do so many things that will ultimately yield a great outcome. Yeah. But other things can also happen, right? Things like consulting engagements. If you know how many you might get, you may choose to pair up the most qualified people who have expertise, not just in their technical area, but also some vertical expertise that they may bring to the table, like an e-commerce specialist who also can do a great implementation of your product. So Mm -hmm. prediction allows you to plan better. And the planning ultimately results in better matching of your company's resources to serving the customer needs. Yeah. Planning was really where I was going to jump in, actually, because if I were to make a metaphor, it's like the difference between someone who has a great schedule management. They know exactly what the week has ahead of them. That person isn't stressed. They know exactly what's going to happen. They're ready for what's going to happen. But the person who figures it out every day, that might be sustainable to a certain level. But then when you get really, really busy, no person can handle that. No No CEO can live without a schedule. Well, maybe there are a few, but I would dare say they would be more relaxed if they had one. (laughs) I I think that's the crux of it. Can you manage it? Of course you can manage it. Can you do it easily? Can you do it easily? Within comfort? Can you do it without crunching? And also, on a business perspective, can you do it sustainably? You know, not everybody will handle the stress correctly, so you may have people churn. From a business perspective, if you're flying by the proverbial seat of your pants, you're probably not making the best cost allocation to these problems. Things that could be automated, People may be doing them. People will be constantly firefighting. So you may have to have more staff to do things that could be done with less people. It stresses me out just talking about it. So, so, so I hope you understand. Like it's not just a question of can we do it? Yeah, anything is possible. And there's always an exception to any statement anyone makes. <laughs> but I would also say, can you do it in a scalable way? Can you do it in a profitable way? Can you do it in a way that is sustaining, that is nurturing? Yeah. If you're interested in learning more about customer support, visit kaiser.com blog. There you'll also be able to find a subscription to our newsletter for more valuable content. Thank you. Scalability was one thing that I wanted to ask you about, but just before we jump, I wanted to quickly ask you, because you're so experienced in applying data and because of your perspective, I wanted to ask what common pitfalls that you see um, with Companies that say they're aware that they're more in this like storytelling camp, right? But they want to move more toward this data-driven feedback, but also prediction kind of camp. How do they shift from one camp to the other? And what are the hurdles that a lot of people fall at in trying to make that transition? Yeah, I'll tell you some of the pitfalls. And we've talked about this, but I have a, I have a loving term for it. I call it the watermelon metrics. Okay. And what I mean is, you know, you go through juicy. It, it's juicy, you know, it, it, they're not so probably <laughs> great. These are like, you know, metrics you go in and like everything looks great, right? Yeah. This number is up. The graph is always up and to the right. Mm-hmm. And 
you start to ask questions and you realize it's all read inside. People have discarded portions of the data. I remember one time I went in and asked, hey, uh, how, how do you think our customers would rate us? And they very proudly showed me how high their CSAT was. Mm-hmm. And then I asked the question, so it seems like awfully high. I mean, knowing what I knew about the team, it was like in, mm-hmm. this, in all the 90s, I'm like, it's like a really high score. It's like, so, um, you know, how many product bugs and how many things are going on? And they're like, oh, we, we really don't know, but we tend to have this rate of bugs. And I was like, that's a very high rate of bugs. So I said, how do you calculate this? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, we only send uh, this survey to folks that we have successfully resolved the issue. <laughs> okay. Okay, like so obviously... election bias. Like, wow. There's a election <laughs> bias right there. And when I'm saying watermelon metrics is, these are metrics and they exist everywhere. They look green from the outside. When mm. you cut them, it's all red inside. Understood. And understood. You have to sort of have this discipline to not just get excited by something positive, but be grounded and ask all the questions to really understand what is feeding into this metric. Yeah. So it's not questioning people's integrity, it's understanding how is this metric calculated. In yeah. the SAS world, a lot of people will talk about a metric called the net revenue retention or in the US net dollar retention. Mm-hmm. When you ask people how you've actually calculated that metric, the definition will vary. Understood. Some people will pick people who have been active last 12 months. Some people will pick last three months. And you're going, okay, is three months the right thing for this business or should it be 12 months? Because you can artificially, you know, jigger with these things and make a metric look good. So it's very important to understand as a leader, what is driving this. Right. Then the second pitfall people make, I think is around, I would say, getting a rounded view of what's going on. So I can say something very simple. Hey, it seems like lots of customers are signing up. So the product must be good. Mm. Not failing to understand after sign up, what is their weekly active usage rates or daily active usage rates? Yeah. Are they logging into the system periodically for the types of things they should be? Mm-hmm. Just making that simple connection is the second pivot that I think all of us need to be aware of is are we looking at metrics in a silo or are we looking at all the metrics that are reflected as customers touch us and are we instrumenting the entire customer journey and getting to get a more holistic view of what's happening with the customer. So stitching this data, stitching this customer 360 is I think the second thing that it's hard to do, and that's why people don't do yeah. it. And you know, it's uh, that that it's not because of bad intentions. It's just hard oh, to do no. it. But that's the second pitfall. No, say. it's an important thing to raise, right? It is hard to find really good data scientists that can toe the line between your business needs and cases, mm-hmm. and also the actual skills necessary to implement the analysis and clean the data sets the way that you need them to be cleaned and analyzed. Yes. Let alone the fact that giants suck up a lot of the talent from certain places. So it's a difficult landscape to navigate for sure. But I think what we've really identified are some core tenants that people can use to guide their thinking. Because at the end of the day, when you're applying certain analyses to your business, you have to take a scientific standpoint, right? And again, I'll be the first person to, to say this. Humans aren't perfect. It's You can't hold people's feet to the fire. But at the same time, A scientist owes it to themselves and owes it to their field to be cold and calculated. You know, you can't have an emotional attachment to your hypothesis. You just can't. You're testing your hypothesis. You're even even more so in data science. You're not even testing your hypothesis. 
you're testing the antonym to your hypothesis. You're not even yes. saying that your hypothesis is correct. Yes. You're just saying that something is incorrect, yes. right? So it's even another level. Yeah. And I think that's really what everyone has to drum into their heads. Because again, we're not rational animals. We're monkeys, way over-evolved monkeys. We're not designed to approach problems like this. But you have to sort of beat those heuristics down in your head to constantly put yourself in that perspective. And it's difficult for all of us to do. I, I, could, not, I could not agree with you more. Yeah. Also, we all come in with biases. I mean, we were launching this program on engaging and acquiring customers. It was a freemium product. And, you know, we were having some traction because once you acquired them, the implementation of the solution was a little bit technical. And mm -hmm. I always felt personally that, hey, high touch is better. And so we went around the team and we all said, oh, it'd be great if we can offer like a video-based assistance where two people can sign up for a video conference and you can do a screen share and we can walk you through every single thing. Uh, mm -hmm. And it'll be quick, fast. We can see exactly where they are. And I'm sure everybody would love it because everybody in our team seems to love it when somebody shows it to them. Yeah. And when we did that, it was a resounding failure. And it was a resounding failure because it turned out people didn't want to be told step by step where they were going wrong or what they needed to do. These were simple steps. A lot of people, I think, felt like going through this process would expose their lack of technical knowledge Understood. and as a result, never signed up. Yeah. But they were very happy to do this via email and to use some tooling to identify the problems and have this conversation via email. Interesting. So something simple as somebody's internal motivation on how they want to be perceived what they believe their value proposition is and the solution you're offering, even though it may be more efficient and better, uh, people may not adopt it because of these reasons. Yeah, I think that's why I find this whole field so fascinating because I'm a science guy. I like numbers. I love economics. But at the same time, I'm fascinated by human beings, you know, in social sciences. And it really is the intersection of these two worlds, because as we've said, you have to implement data if you want to be scalable and if you want to get ahead of the issues that you're going to have to solve. But at the same time, you have to sort of pull yourself out of that cold calculating perspective and put yourself in the mind of your customer and say, hang on a minute, what is the decision frame? What are the psychological factors yeah. leading into this relationship? Yeah. And it's sort of a, a very difficult line to toe, right? Yeah. But something I did just mention was scalability. And that was something you mentioned too. Mm -hmm. We spoke a little bit about it before we started recording. And it was really, really something that I loved talking to you about. So one such example that you gave that I found really, really convincing was that we were talking about sales as a service, B2B, and you were saying, it's all very well and good to really value your customers and want to help them. But mm -hmm. if you open yourself up to one-on-one -on -one training each of your customers, each of your leads, and having that relationship be very intensive, suddenly when you have 100,000 customers, you can't do that with any of them anymore. So if you make too many promises, you almost can't fulfill them and you, you hurt yourself in the end. I could not agree with you more. It was your point, Dutra, in all fairness. I just regurgitated it. <laughs> you, you, you summarized it probably better than I said it. So let me, let me, let, let me kind of give my, my, my two cents. You, you're yeah. absolutely right. Like at some point in time, you just can't scale one-on-one -on -one relationships. When you're going 100,000 customers, you're going global. And, and the approach I've always said is, what are we trying to do? Yeah. And the way I approach scalability is one I want to understand who are my customers first. And this is a very simple customer segmentation exercise, but it's not like the segmentation exercise where let's think about all the people who spend a lot of money with us and hence we do all the great things for them. It's, yeah. It needs to be an exercise, which is, of course, how much money they spend with you because that does have an input. But the second thing is to really understand where does your product shine? Mm -hmm. Which industry verticals does this work best in? Maybe it is e-commerce that this works really well. Maybe this works very well with traditional CPG brand kind of companies. Sorry, what's CPG? Consumer products and goods. Okay, understood, understood. The laundry detergents, mm -hmm. yeah. cookies, 
you know, anything that is like sort of like, you know, you buy off retail so to consume. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks. But e-commerce is like completely different beast versus this, right? So you have to say, where is my product really going to do well? And of course, these people are spending a lot and that's great. But what about the people who have engaged with us and are not spending as much or not engaging as much? What's going on there? So your customer segmentation has to be a combination of not just current revenue, but also potential for your product to improve the lives of the customers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the first step. Now, once you've identified this, you can roughly break this into three things. Uh, People you need to have like super high value relationships with. And for them, you should have some N is to one where, you know, one person has 15 accounts, 25 accounts, depending on the size of the account and what needs to be done, right? Some kind of like a account management-ish model. Yeah. The second, I would say, is what I call a more programmatic in, in some SaaS circles. It's called the tech touch, which is programmatic implementation of a success program, which could be anything from feature adoption to making them aware of functionality that they have never used and they should be using. So not mm-hmm. the start of using and using it well to setting things up correctly, helping them migrate, et cetera, et cetera. But it's basically this, you have an opportunity to grow, but you're not growing. But our goal is to come and give you a little boost, a little jumpstart. Mm-hmm. And you power that through automation technology. Okay. And the last one is what I would say is sporadic customers, customers that are probably doing the business as they should. And you really should think about them more as, reactive and these lists will bleed sometimes somebody who is completely reactive may need some proactive services and and sometimes they may need very high touch services but that level of granularity and dynamic allocation will have to be determined by the business right so if i'm going to read this back to you in order to scale successfully you have to segment your customers successfully and, and really be clear with yourself and with them about what it is their expectations of you are and be very, very strict with oneself in understanding what are we willing to do for these people? What are we willing to do for those people? What's best for everyone? Mm-hmm. And you need to decide that beforehand. And what I'm reading is you can't really successfully do this in an ad hoc manner, right? Mm-hmm. After a relationship has been established, then decide what the relationship is going to be. Yeah, 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 100%. It's like you take the girl on a date and then you turn around and you go to a random place and you know just like a gym or something and she's like what the hell are we doing here you know yes, yes, yes. and that comes down a lot to setting expectations so yeah. if you don't do this work beforehand you can't set the right expectations with your customers and therefore you can't satisfy those needs because yeah. the customer will gauge their needs based on what they think they can get from you so if you successfully present expectations you're basically planting a seed in their head that makes it more likely that they're going to be satisfied. Because yeah. if Duter, I say, I'm going to buy you a wonderful muffin. It's going to be a homemade muffin, Duter. It's delicious. And yeah. then I bring you the muffin and it's got goddamn blueberries in. And I didn't say that. And it's like, oh, I thought that was chocolate chip. You didn't say <laughs> it was going to be, you didn't say it was going to be blueberries, you know, yeah. or it's got goddamn oats inside or something. And I'm like, it's a healthy muffin. It's like, you never told me that. <laughs> I would say I would 100% agree with you. And what I was explaining to you was how you do it internally based on the customer segments and who you should serve and how you should serve it. But the flip point you're making is equally, if not more important, which is around expectation setting. You know, you go mm-hmm. to like an average like subscription software page or even a direct-to-consumer product, they will all talk about the value of the subscription in terms of product, and feature functionality. What they're not going to say, that's not true all the time. I think a lot of companies started to realize this now and doing it, but most of them don't say what is the level of service they're going to get after they sign up. Mm. They expect their questions answered in 24 hours. Will they get access to live support in the form of a phone Or will they get only email support? Will there be weekend coverage? Will there be any 
specialized onboarding services, yeah. how many hours of onboarding services will they get, right? Why I love that Intercom give you the average reply time when you've got that little Intercom pop-up on, on your webpage. Yeah. Because yeah. without that average reply time, I might close the webpage if I don't get a reply in two minutes. Yeah, it's a big function of not just what I do when I'm about to buy a product, but what can I expect after I get this? And yeah. I think this is one of those things, uh, very fundamental. Otherwise, any, any company rightfully will say, we want to make a customer successful. We want to keep customers first. But definition of what that customer first means will be very different depending on who the customer is. So it is the responsibility of the company to state that and make it as precise as possible and that ultimately leads to better expectation settings. And if you're delivering at that point in time, you're going to have much better chance of having happy, more engaged customers. Yeah. We're coming now to the hour point, Duta. I want to open it up a little bit to you. Are there sort of bits of this puzzle, facets of this conversation that you'd like to touch on further that you don't think we've really addressed enough? I think one of the things we've talked a lot about, hey, how do you think about customer experience? Mm -hmm. Why is it so interconnected and why is it so relevant? We talked a little bit about data. How do you build about data? How do you use data to drive certain behaviors and so on and so forth? We mm -hmm. talked a little bit about scale. How do you set customer expectations? How do you think about one-on-one -on -one versus servicing customers through programs? I think the last thing I would say is, which is probably one of the most important things is really building the right teams and the value of having very good established norms around collaboration, how you treat customers, and probably the, the fundamental part of this is how you empower your team members. Interesting. One of the pitfalls I see when people start to scale and everything else is when people go this route of data, it can start to feel that the people are being micromanaged because mm. you're recording things, you're analyzing things. It is equally important to create an environment where the actual decision-making around how to deliver great experience is still at the hands of the person who is interacting with the customer, whether it's phone, whether it's email, whether it's a video conference, whether it's a project. And what I mean is, it is typically not a good idea to say, well, an average call takes 10 minutes, so we should optimally focus on 10 minutes per call. Or mm. an average time to solve a ticket, you should be solving seven tickets a day. And why didn't you solve seven tickets? I mean, the question should be, you should be solving seven tickets a day. You didn't. Tell us what are the great experiences you provided that led you to do only four. Because we want to understand what those situations were. And maybe that's how we should be doing business down the road. Interesting. So I think those are some of, the, some of the ways to really make sure that the metrics are not preventing us from getting additional insights into why it takes longer. Because yeah. there may be actually legitimate reasons why it's taking longer because of a new functionality that has appeared in the product that is too complicated. Mm. Maybe somebody is not trained. Maybe somebody is on an onboarding call and the goals customer gave have now all of a sudden changed. And because the goals have changed, somebody had to go back and reset and do a goal setting session halfway through their execution. So all of these are examples of when something doesn't comply, the question shouldn't be, how do you improve it? The question should be, let's ask the team members why it took more time, why this is, this is different than what we would expect, and what can we learn from it? It's almost like you take the same approach with getting feedback from your team that you take with getting feedback from your customers. You know what I mean? Because the customer is the person who understands the interaction, their interaction with the business the best. They understand yeah. why they approached you. They understand 
why they bought what they bought or why they didn't buy what they buy and and so on and so on. Mm. But then equally on the employer side, the mm-hmm. employee is the one who's closest to that particular process. Exactly. They're the ones who have been doing it for so many years or so many months. Yeah. So they're the experts on what went differently this week or what went differently today. Yeah. And as, as leaders, I think this is a point, you know, I'm not saying I do the best all the time, but this is definitely something I've always tried to improve personally. The more senior you become, the more you see data, and especially someone like me who has a bias towards data, you tend to spend a lot of time with all of this stuff. You tend to spend a lot of time with strategy. But one thing I have made it a point to keep time on is to do skip level meetings. Yeah. When travel was available, spending time with the team members, asking them, you know, show me this. And there was an interesting time. I was in, it was right before COVID happened. I was in Dublin and I was like, I heard you mention this in a Q&A. Can I spend like 15 minutes with you? And can you walk me through exactly what this means? And I'm trying to develop a strategy. Here is my hypothesis. Tell me why you didn't think it would work. This person sat me. We were like, you know, it's an ad hoc meeting. He says, listen, Duda, this is absolutely possible. Let me tell you why I think we are not able to meet this. And the person gave me such great insights. Insights that I would have eventually figured out by looking at data and so on and so forth. But he helped me jumpstart my understanding of this program and shorten that learning curve maybe by a month. Wow. Just from one meeting? Just that one meeting. And you cannot predict every meeting is going to be the same. That's not what this is about. You know, some are about people's problems. But to constantly do skip level meetings, spending time with the folks who actually talk with with your customers or engaging with your customers will give every leader extremely valuable insights that can then help to round up not just the qualitative elements of decision making. It's going to basically take a much, much more interesting dimension to the qualitative, like the database that you have to make your decisions. Yeah. One of the most interesting things that I heard on this point, I was talking to Benedict Dorman, who is the head of global support at N26. And he said something that was very interesting to me. He said, the more high level you get, the more drowned you are in data and metrics and KPIs and numbers and numbers and spreadsheets and graphs. And he said, sometimes some of the most convincing things that you can say in these board meetings where we're talking about the macroscopic analysis of the entire business, super serious stuff is, someone said to me, blah, 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 just a a small anecdote or a little story to help contextualize what it is you're actually talking about. Because, you know, going back to the point that that we were making earlier, we are just over-evolved apes. Human beings aren't perfectly rational beings. So when we're drowned in numbers and we put ourselves in a particular frame of thinking, it can be very difficult sometimes to reconnect with what it is we're actually talking about and offering some of that qualitative insights like that meeting you mentioned, or Mm -hmm. like Benedict said, with giving some anecdotes or some personal stories, it can really help ground you, right? And I mean, what you just said is it saved you a hell of a lot of time. It did. And that's exactly true. Even when you give all the data and everything else as humans, we relate to stories. We relate to anecdotes. We relate to real-life experiences. We're looking for that one element of human connection that makes that insight come alive. So 100%, that's been my experience. Also, being able to say, yeah, we should do this. And by doing this, we believe we can improve X, Y, and Z. And by the way, we tried this for like the first 15 customers we tried this, they seem to have these results. And this was their feedback. And this is what went well and what didn't go well. Just that additional context, additional example helps drive and helps everybody get a sense of not just what the good things are, but what the learnings are, what the life may look like for the customer, what the life may look like for the employee who's executing on the strategy. No, I I totally see that. I think this is probably a perfect place to round it off. Dusa, is there anything you'd like to leave me with? Anything you'd like to leave the listeners with before we sound off? I had a wonderful time. So I think think we've talked about all the good stuff. Yeah, we've got all the juicy bits. 
Yes, yes, we did. We did. We as did. one should. As one should. Yeah, so thank you very much, Duta, for joining me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you in the next one. Cheers, guys. Thank you. This podcast is made possible by Kaizo. Kaizo is a performance management platform that helps customer support teams be more productive and engaged. If you're a Zendesk user, go to kaizo.com and book a demo today.